business, the blog and podcast for game changers and innovators in the construction industry. Hello and welcome to episode 62 of the AEC Business Podcast. I'm Arni Heiskanen and my guest is Andrew Weinrich, a serial entrepreneur who's founded seven startups, including the world's first social network, Six Degrees. Andrew has a new podcast about the next revolutions in technology. It's called Predicting Our Future. The first vertical he's exploring is the future of home building, and that's our topic today. Andrew, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. You're a very uh, versatile guy, I, uh, but I, if I'm correct, your businesses have been in the digital domain mainly. What made you interested in the future of home building? So as you, as you correctly pointed out, all of my businesses have been in the digital space. Um, companies I've started over the past 20 years. And the, the, the common theme, the businesses were dramatically different from one another. The first business, as you mentioned, was um, a social network. We were actually the world's first social network, probably the largest community site uh, in 1999. Uh, I had a mobile CRM uh, company that I sold to IBM, a mobile dating company I sold to Match. But the common thread amongst them all were opportunities where I thought an industry was ripe for disruption. So in each of the businesses I started, I looked at trends that I thought were bigger than the specific uh, efforts that I could put forth. And I looked for what I, what I like to refer to as uh, a macro thesis that consisted of an inevitability. In other words, because everyone was going online, it was inevitable that everyone would index their relationships in a single database. And if everyone indexed their relationships in a single database, we could see the people we don't know through the people we do, and therefore we would have a social network. I thought because the world was moving to smartphones, that online dating would move to mobile dating. So I look for the common thread is I look for inevitabilities that I think have the promise of massively disrupting an industry. And so the, the, that concept, that notion of looking for threads that I think are going to lead to an indus industry's disruption is the essential underpinning of the podcast, is to go through different verticals and say, where can we look at a vertical today? By a vertical, I mean a, a, a specific space, a specific industry, where can we look at a vertical today and imagine that it's going to be dramatically different tomorrow or in, in five years, in 10 years? Uh, yesterday, there was an article in the paper about flying cars and about Larry Page investing $100 million in flying cars. And, and so is that an inevitability? Your question was, what, what, was, what brought me to the first vertical being in the construction space. Well, in the United States, modular construction significantly lags behind what we see elsewhere around the world. So for new construction starts in Sweden, we can see you know, a majority of single family homes being built modularly and, and we see, we see uh, similar uh, 
modular construction with, with significant market share in places like Japan and elsewhere around the world. And in the United States, historically, we don't have that. Now, that's particularly strange when everything you can imagine today, from the paperclip to your smartphone, is made in a factory. Why is it that, it, certainly in this country, we associate homes made in factory with um, the lowest of low-end homes, a very um, low-end product? And so first question is, why is that? And, and the second question is, could that change? Could we, could we be on the, on the precipice of looking at the next Tesla, uh, but not for car building, but for home building? And, and like we've seen so much innovation come out of Silicon Valley for inventing new industries, are we on the cusp of seeing Silicon Valley invent an entire new industry or Silicon Valley or other technologists invent an entire new industry in home building. So that that's my long-winded answer to how I got to this industry and what got me excited about it. All right. And uh, I did hear in the first episode that you had a, a personal connection as well, <laughs> a, a project of your own. Well, you know, I, I think um, like, you know, many people, but maybe entrepreneurs in particular, you think you can do, you know, you... You can build a business. You think, "Wow, it can't be that hard to build a home," and um, and then you embark on building a home, and you hear these horror stories ahead of time about people that build homes and and they come in a hundred percent over budget, and you say, "You know that that can't be me," and then you start building your home, and you realize probably all the mistakes that other people made, and you go through this exercise in in like in finding the most inefficient way to do just about everything but um, and spend a lot more money than you expect. But I, I don't regret a minute of it because I, I found it to be a fascinating learning experience. And but yes, I had a I built a home. Um, I, I live in New York City. I actually live in Brooklyn. Um, and um, and I have a home by the beach uh, 100 miles from here in um in the Hamptons, and the construction was um, a mess. How does it feel to be a customer uh, as a, as a homeowner, home builder? Well, well, it, well it, so it's it's interesting. So, if you think about, and this is really what intrigued me about the space, if you think about a um, an end user purchasing a product, when you purchase a car. You don't, you, you have a limited number of choices that you can make. So if you so decide I'm looking for a BMW and I want an SUV, there are choices you can make about a sports package or not a sports package. And uh, you can make a choice about the leather interior or, uh, or a synthetic material, or you can make a choice about the color. But beyond basic choices, You don't, design, you don't design how many seats are in the back. You don't design where the windows are. You don't fundamentally get to reshape what your car looks like. There are a finite and relatively small number of choices for each manufacturer, and that's what you choose. As a consumer, a lot of people think in the, it, 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 a lot of people think, let's talk about on the production side, 
that everyone's preference is to have an infinite number of choices. And because people are willing to pop, to, to furnish an infinite number of choices for your home, this is not on the car side, on the home side, consumers now are faced with with virtually an infinite number of decisions from, you know, I need to choose every bathroom fixture to every tile to every, you know, I, you can choose whether you want to spray foam in the walls to whether you want fiberglass, you know, bad insulation, you can choose the height of your ceilings. And, and the result is, I'm not sure you're better off or you're happier as a customer with all of these decisions than you would be if there was a factory product that had a limited number of decisions. And that was, um, now there'd be more decisions if there was a factory product, I think, than there would be for a car, just because many more rooms, uh, your time spent, your experience in a home demands more choices, but there doesn't need to be an infinite number of choices. And I, I, I always thought, by the way, and that's one of the things that makes certainly in the United States, as I've gone around and spoke, spoken to uh, single home family manufacturers that are convinced that every single home they build has to be unique. It takes this notion of mass customization to an entirely another level. And so it, it's an interesting dynamic. Like it, it's an, it, I find it to be an interesting dynamic to contrast different industries and the way a consumer approaches them and how your expectations are set in different industries. And other than home building, it's hard to, to, to construct, uh, no pun intended, in another industry where you view your choices as a purchaser as infinite. Yeah, that, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, we know that it makes sense to um, move to industrialized processes in, in uh, home building, but what do you think is holding us back and how would you make the change happen? So I, I, I think what's holding us back um, is different in different places. Like, for example, in the United States, we, we've historically had um, an abundance of inexpensive labor. And, and, and by the way, you see that in the differential of pricing and where factory construction has taken off, where there's an abundance of in, inexpensive labor, where the seasons uh, are warm all year, the south of the United States, the southwest, you have less modular construction, certainly less modular residential construction than you do in colder climates. And, and one of the places where you see a tremendous amount of activity in modular factories and some of the most innovative uh, modular factories that I've seen is in Canada. And, 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 I, and I think there's a correlation between um, the weather, the labor, uh, in Canada relative to the northern part of the United States and then as you progressively move south. So um, so one, one challenge is if you think about what is it that makes us move to a factory-built product, and, and I'm not talking about construction of homes, just anything, what makes us move? Why, why is, you know, why today is apparel, you know, uh, why do we find apparel coming out of factories as opposed to all um, uh, woven by hand? And so there are two things that drive things into a factory. One is cost, 
and the other is quality. And if you can't demonstrate on the cost side that there is substantial cost savings, uh, then you don't move into a factory. Now, it, one of the challenges in the United States, and I think elsewhere around the world, but in the United States in particular, this industry, the construction industry, is so fragmented, you don't really have the vertical integration that you see in other industries. And by, by vertical integration in the construction industry, I mean um, that the architect, the designer, the general contractor, the plumber, the electrician, the framer, uh, uh, the folks that are grading the property, pouring the foundation, all of those are part of the same entity. If, if all of those were part of the same entity, you would eliminate inefficiencies be between them and there would therefore be cost savings between them. But historically, um, we've grown in, and we've become accustomed to this notion that these are very different industries with different interests. And, um, and because, uh, because definitionally real estate requires local work, at some point you can build it anywhere, but at some point you need to put it in ground, it's been difficult for there to be vertical integration across all the service industries. So the difficulty in integration across all the service industries, the fact that labor has been relatively cheap or not significantly more expensive um, than uh, you would be able to translate to savings in a factory. And then also because in climates where there's warm weather, um, you can build 12 months year round, again, a cost savings relative to colder climates. It has been uh, the progress of moving, this is just from a holistic perspective, the pro those three factors have impeded the progress of um, a massive port from off or on-site on construction to in-factory construction. But I think that's all gonna change. But I, I would say, your question was, you know, why do I think this hasn't happened? I think that was your question. Yeah. I, 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 think, I think those factors have um, have made this industry uh, different from all the other industries that we could talk about, automobiles, manufacture of phones, uh, refrigerators, or any other product that's moved into a factory where we've seen dramatic cost savings and dramatic improvements in quality. Yes, yes, I'm, I, I, I agree, I, I would say. <laughs> yes. um, well, talking about your podcast your podcast episodes have great titles like home in a box the tesla of home building and google china and overnight cities um, can you say a few words about the the podcast itself and uh, what can we expect to hear and learn sure sure so what i tried to do was i had two perspectives about how i approach any industry but um, and let me tell you those holistically, and then we can talk about, about construction. If you speak to leaders in a space that consist of large uh, uh, members of large industry, academics, and then most importantly, startups, people that are willing to take dramatic risks, you can get a perspective of how leading thinkers have thought about a space and then piece that together into a sense of where things are going. So 
what I did was I interviewed 29 people. Uh, and these people ranged from all of the venture-backed companies. So uh, what I would call startups, but I use that term loosely. There was a startup there that raised $200 million in venture capital. Uh, so all of the startups in the, in the construction space um, to some of the more uh, accomplished architectural firms, to the largest prefab builder in China, to the equipment makers who are actually building machinery that goes into these factories, to academics that have considered what would need to happen for modular construction to take place because they have become, or they are experts lecturing in line manufacturing for the automotive space and the cruise ship building space, which are good analogs. And what I found was um, we're really much closer to a tipping point than I expected when I started. So let me let me share with you. You mentioned some of those titles. Um, there are two constructs for how people think about modular housing. One is prefabricated housing includes modular housing. The way I like to describe it to lay people is prefabricated housing is um, when we think about prefabricated housing, we think about it in the context of most of the framing, the uh, what we think are the critical components to a, a home are pre-cut to size in a factory. And think of it as if a box has six sides, the four walls, the top, the bottom, they could be laid one on top of another and put on the back of a truck. Modular, which is also all the pieces are put in a factory, the box is assembled on in the factory and shipped as a box as opposed to um, assembled on site. Now, when you do modular, of course, you have the ability to go much further. You can put in your plumbing, your electric, your uh, you can literally put in your cabinetry, your appliances. The fundamental limiting factor behind modular in the United States, and this is true elsewhere in the world, is you deliver uh, these boxes to sites, principally on trucks. And in the United States, the Department of Transportation prescribes the maximum size of a container that can be on the back of a truck. So the question becomes, if you're delivering modularly, um, how do you create larger spaces, piece together boxes that are definitionally constrained by the Department of Transportation in the United States and what can be put on the back of a truck. So uh, what I did in these podcasts was I said, well, let me just look at all of the folks that are doing really cool things with kits. By kits, I'm talking about prefabricated, not assembled in a box. And I, I don't know for your, your listeners overseas, but one of the most well-known companies in the United States, which is really in trouble today because of Amazon, is a company called Sears. And Sears, uh, between 1900 and 1942, built over 100,000 homes in the United States that were assembled by kits. They literally mailed you a kit. And these are majestic homes that went up in the United States right up until the United States got, or a year after the United States got involved in, in World War II. Uh, the, these majestic homes would go up. These kits would be sent to, to to a location and then 
you and your neighbors would assemble these, these beautiful homes. Well, that notion of a kit has become back into vogue, has come back into vogue today. And so you can literally buy a home that's sent to you as a kit. All the pieces show up, there's an instruction booklet, and you can go about and assemble it. And I did a entire episode on, uh, well, if I wanna buy one of these kits, who would I buy it from? What would it look like? What are my choices? Um, and is this notion of a kit the wave of the future? So that was one episode. Right. Very interesting story, by the way. <laughs> That's yeah. your story, yeah. Well, uh, what, what was the uh, most uh, surprising thing that you found during these podcasts? Well, there were two things I thought were, were really, you know, one episode was, was about um, high rises, that, you know, prefabrication is not limited to single family homes. The, this summer, the largest, this, this past summer, 2016, a 32-story modular building went up in Brooklyn. I mean, literally two miles from where I live, they stack 32 stories of modular uh, rooms right on top of another. And if you were to drive by this building, even though this building had a lot of problems, it was the, um, it got mired in litigation and they had some construction problems, but I'm not sure that that's an indication of what would happen on the next one or the next one. I think, I think, um, a lot of those problems would not appear on subsequent builds. Um, but a 32-story building went up. Um, so this isn't, you know, when you think about modular, you think about single-family homes. Well, not true. People were building high-rises with modular development. And then on the prefabricated side, you know, people were, are, are building 57-story buildings prefabricated or largely prefabricated. The other thing I thought was, was super interesting, this is living here in New York, was in the Hamptons, it's not unusual for people to build high-end homes where, um, where a local contractor will charge as much as $800 a square foot to build the home. I mean, phenomenally expensive. And, um, and, I, and, and, you know, and it's not unusual if you're in other markets, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, um, depending upon where you are in those cities where it's not unusual to see homes that are built at $500 a square foot. And one of the things I th thought was so interesting was there, there are architects that are putting up homes in the Hamptons that are modular. And these are $10 million homes or multi-million dollar homes that are gorgeous. And instead of charging $800 a square foot, They're charging $400 a square foot. And when you speak to them and they talk with you, and I, I, I interviewed um, one of them in, in the podcast, they explain to you they are buying the house from a factory in Pennsylvania that's selling it to them for $200 a square foot. So it was really interesting to realize that in that case, where labor is so expensive in this um This is, you know, there is, uh, for your international listeners, Long Island juts out um, mostly east from Manhattan and it goes into the Atlantic. And at the end of Long Island is, is, um, is where this beachfront community is and labor is very expensive. And so what I didn't realize was that um, the builders there were able to command these incredible prices to build a home. 
And a number of folks had figured out that if they had their home built um, 200 miles, 250 miles inland, so go back into Long Island, cross over Manhattan, go 140 miles into Pennsylvania, and you had your home built there, all of a sudden there was a massive cost savings. And a number of people were had successfully figured out how to arbitrage that opportunity. And I, I found that to be um, really, really interesting. Same dynamic um, where there's a big cost savings in some of these other uh, markets where you've seen an, an incredible appreciation in real estate, like San Francisco, LA, Seattle, Portland. Um, and so, you know, when, when we started, you and I were, were talking about what drives things into a factory, um, when you begin to see the promise of a massive cost savings, you can begin to see an acceleration of, um, of excitement about moving things into a factory. I'll just share with you one other thing that I thought was really interesting. In Singapore, where uh, something like 40% of the land mass is, um, it, you know, is, reclaimed, is reclaimed land, um, I think that's the number, um, the, there's an immense interest when the government um, is licensing or is selling or as, a, or as permitting builders, there's this immense interest in making sure that it is as um, it, it is the least disruptive to the residents as possible. And so their building code awards points um, for construction that is done in a factory. So the more that's done offsite, the less that's done onsite. And they have this very interesting approach to how they think about um, incentivizing or motivating or requiring developers to build offsite. And I, and I had never thought about that before. I thought that was, I thought, I mean, I, I wish that was something that existed in New York where, because building can be very disruptive in New York as you're walking around the streets. But I thought that was super interesting that cities have a vested interest in moving um large construction projects into factories so they're less disruptive to urban life. And, and one of the leaders in that, you know, is, is what's happening in, in Singapore. And I thought that was, I thought that was fantastically interesting. Yeah, that's a very good point. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm, I'm sure that now our listeners are just waiting to listen to your podcast. So where, where can they find your podcasts? So we're in the, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, we're in the, the usual places, iTunes, um, get it in the Google Play Store, um, Stitcher, and, uh, um, and you can also go to uh, our website, predictingourfuture.com, predictingourfuture.com. Um, and you can not just see, uh, you can not just listen to the, the podcast there, but you can see all the supporting material as well and all the people we interviewed and the pictures of, of their projects. We, we went to great length to try to um, give people an opportunity to both listen to it from their phone and their car, but also then to later visualize, you know, what all of these homes that I'm talking about look like. Yes, yes. Okay, so, um, well, what comes next? What, what's, what, what are your plans? <laughs> 
Well, we're working on a podcast now that'll come out um, shortly about online voting. So, so in this past presidential election, the, the U.S. presidential election in 2016, the total turnout of eligible voters in the United States was 54, 54.3.6%. And amazingly, the most consequential presidential election in U.S. history, I think, and uh, just a little over half the eligible voters voted in the United States. And and then in the in the aftermath of the election, we have you know lots of discussion about why Hillary Clinton wasn't able to turn a few thousand voters here or a few thousand voters there. Um, but not a lot of discussion about what happened to the 46% of people that didn't vote at all. So I'm exploring internet voting and whether or not, you know, in, for example, in Estonia, there's internet voting in uh, certain cantons in Switzerland, there's internet voting. I'm exploring how far is the United States from internet voting? And if we did have internet voting, um, what would that mean for turnout? Would, could the United States get to a place where voter turnout was substantially higher, and if it was substantially higher, um, who does that benefit? Does that benefit the Democrats or the Republicans? Ah, good question. <laughs> well, ah, this was a really nice, uh, really good discussion. I thank you very much, Andrew, and all the best to your work and your future home building. <laughs> thank you, Arnie. It was, it was a pleasure talking to you. Mm -hmm.